Welcome. Well, we had a great uh, time out at the, uh, the golf day there, and uh, I accomplished a feat that made the men with me marvel. Now, I haven't played in a year, and so uh, on, on one of the, uh, on one of the uh, spots where we teed off, uh, I hit the ball and broke the head of the number one wood right off. <laughs> and I didn't hit the ground because the, the little, what do you call it, the tee, the, the tee part was, was still there. Uh, and, and all the guys with me, you know, who golf all the time, they enjoyed that thoroughly. And uh, it was, golfing was a very, very humbling experience. <laughs> You know, some of you are saying there's not going to be any golfing in heaven. And, and if there is, it's going to be a hole-in-one every time. And it won't be any fun anymore. Uh, we're in Revelation 14 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 5, <clears throat> entitled our, our message this morning, uh, Without Fault, Before the Throne of God. Uh, as once again, we, uh, we look at um, a very select group of individuals uh, the 144,000 um, Jewish, as somebody once dubbed them, Jewish Billy Grahams. And uh, we'll read here in verses 1 through 5, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and, and then we'll comment on these things. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on, the, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Uh, having his father's name uh, written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four uh, living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And with that, let's pray. Lord, uh, what an example that we have before us of these faithful servants and Lord, uh, called into ministry and service at, at one of the most difficult times in all of history. But yet we see they're demonstrating, Lord, their faithfulness. And Lord, I pray as we consider these things this morning, uh, that dear Lord, that you would help us. Help us, Lord, in those areas of, of consecration and dedication. Lord, we want to follow you right to the very end. Lord, we want to finish well. And Lord, as we near the end of this age, Lord, uh, we know that, uh, Lord, the church, Lord, is, uh, Lord, attacked in so many different ways. We face so many different temptations and struggles. But Lord, we know that uh, your grace is always sufficient. Lord, that you're able to keep us. And Lord, uh, uh, we thank you, Father, for your many mercies that you have given to us and granted to us. And Lord, to this church, to your church at large, Lord, this very week, Lord, more, more things than we could ever enumerate, 
because you are faithful, you are awesome, Lord, you are good. And we invite you, Lord, as our shepherd to come and by thy spirit, Lord, to teach us, to instruct us in your ways. Lord, we, we thank you that, Lord, uh, you have called us, Lord, into, Lord, uh, relationship with yourself. Lord, the greatest privilege that could ever be afforded to, to any human being uh, to know the true and the living God. And so, Lord, uh, we, uh, we, we commit these matters to you, and we ask all these things, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come to chapter 14, uh, what we're seeing here is a, a heavenly scene. And we have met this group earlier uh, in Revelation uh, 7, uh, this 144,000. Uh, they, are, they are basically Israelis, uh, 12,000 taken from each tribe. And as we said in the beginning, remember, the, the tribulation period uh, is primarily a, a time where God is, is basically restoring Israel, bringing Israel back to himself. At the same time, though, uh, he is, there's one final sweep, if you will, to the Gentile world. Uh, there's going to be judgment upon the Christ-rejecting world during this particular time that we're talking about, that we're reading about here. But as we look at this group, they have fulfilled their ministry. They, they, they have uh, faithfully served the Lord. They fulfilled their ministry. Uh, and now they stand with the Lord in glory. And there's going to be a day for you and I as well as we finish our lives here. And remember, the most important thing that we do is serving Jesus. I think a lot of times we don't realize we get so caught up in the day-to-day -day kind of thing, just living to provide, to survive, and all that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're going to leave us all behind. The most important thing is, you know, what we do, the impact that we make for Jesus Christ. And we need to, I, need, I think we need a constant reminder of that. Because we become, I think, so earthbound at times, we forget that we're a heavenly people. We're citizens of heaven. That's already been established for us. And so we need to, in a sense, we're that advanced party. We're, we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Uh, and we want to basically, you know, as we uh, sent out this challenge last week, and I don't know if you had an opportunity to talk to anybody this week, um, but uh, it's a thrilling, uh, gotten some feedback. Uh, um, and uh, and, and I, I just want you to pray about it, because the Lord can just wonderfully open the door. Because sometimes you think, well, who am I going to talk to, you know? Uh, sometimes I think we feel kind of cloistered in our lifestyle and, and that kind of situation. But you'd be surprised how God can work out a, a little miracle uh, for you to answer that prayer, uh, to just give to you someone, maybe somebody close to you, somebody that maybe um, who is an acquaintance, or maybe somebody that you don't know altogether, uh, to really witness of your faith and to tell them uh, about Jesus. Uh, God wonderfully honors that. Because I'll tell you what, the only thing we're taking with us is people. Amen? The only thing that we are taking to glory, not taking any of your stuff. We're not taking any of our gold or silver. We're leaving that all behind. As a matter of fact, uh, all the gold we leave behind, uh, it's going to be for paving streets. Okay? Uh, we need to think of it in that kind of a context. So again, these have faithfully fulfilled their ministry and their mission. Uh, they have preached to multitudes. They've evangelized multitudes of people. Uh, having done all that, we know that uh, obviously this, this time period in which they minister is a time of great martyrdom. Uh, no doubt many of them uh, have been martyred, uh, as we see uh, uh, reminded there earlier in, the chapter, earlier in the book of Revelation about all of those, the multitude of people have been martyred and that, and that will be around the throne. But I think the greater point here, 
relative to this group here, this select group of individuals, is that they were faithful to the end. You know, one of the things that uh, you realize that these, the, they are basically uh, closing out a, a, a seven-year time period. Um, you know, and, and judgment is going to fall. Uh, but I think also, too, that that is, in a sense, uh, uh, a reminder that we finish out in age two. Uh, and I believe that we're close to that. Uh, we don't know. No one can predict that. Um, that's why Jesus said you know, that we need to always be ready the, the, on the imminent return of our Lord and our Savior. It could happen at any moment. And, and you do get a sense prophetically. You get a sense also uh, when you look at culturally and what's taking place you know, in our world and so forth. We realize um, that uh, either, either one of the things that we've been praying about is for the Lord to revive things. Uh, that he would revive the church. Because whenever the church is revived, when you look at history, whenever the church is revived, because the church tends to, the, the faith begins to just, you know, there, there's like sort of a burnout. Uh, and it's like every about, a, roughly about every 50 years, God has revived throughout history, throughout the church history, about every 50 years, he's revived the church. And I think we're at a point that it's either revival uh, or basically uh, it's rapture. Uh, he is going to, he's going to finish it up. Um, and that, that, I don't know exactly when, that we don't know when it's going to happen, but I believe that there are at least some here, and maybe hopefully all here, uh, that are going to be in that uh, august group of individuals who will be raptured up. Won't that be an exciting moment um, as, you know, we're zooming up? And, uh, and it's going to just, you know, in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen so quick. Uh, you're not going to be able to fix this or that or the other thing. You've got to do that now. Amen. All the fixing needs to be done now because when that moment comes, we are just going to be taken, we're going to be evacuated out of here. Um, and whatever, you know, whatever is undone is going to remain undone. That's why we know we need to finish up, you know, God's work, you know, here and now before that time will come. Now, the location basically it points us to where that is where it all culminates in Jerusalem. And that's why uh, we've uh, oftentimes mentioned that Jerusalem and Israel is the most, particularly Jerusalem, is the most contested piece of real estate uh, in, in, in all the world and in all of history. And we find that that's where biblically the, the Lord points, it to, points us to, is that it's going to culminate there. And that's where we see here um, the Lord here, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, we're told, with these 144,000. But at the same time, the earth is going through its death throes. But what we're getting here is a little glimpse, a little picture of what takes place at the same time in heaven, much different than what is going on upon this earth. And we saw that, didn't we, when we came to chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, we got pictures of the heavenly scene where there's worship and adoration and praise. And it's a whole different circumstance and situation that we see taking place, you know, in our world today. And that's why I think it's important for us, the more we become heavenly-minded, the more that we have an eternal heavenly perspective, the more effective we will be, you know, here and now. And I think I was sharing this maybe this week or last week, uh, you know, regarding uh, in our Ephesians study on Wednesday night, that there used to be a saying that you can be so uh, heavenly minded, you're no earthly, no earthly good. But I think it's the reverse today. I think people are so earthly minded, uh, Christians are so earthly minded, so caught up in things that they're really no heavenly good. Uh, and, and again, this is all passing away. This is all temporal. It's temporary. Uh, Jesus said our lives are but a vapor. Um, and, and how quickly life is over. But again, all of this stuff that we've accumulated, all that we've worked for, 
You know, people live for these things. We, we cannot take these things with us. We've got to get that into our mind because uh, it frees us from just living and being driven, you know, by the material and by the physical and by all those things uh, because the fact of the matter is we, we will not take any of it with us. It's very, it's just, it's for, it's, it has a shelf life and it's just for here and it's just for now but it will all simply fade away. Now, for this very exceptional group, their battle is over. And it kind of reminds me, I was thinking of uh, what uh, Paul wrote you know, to the church in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 4. And in verses 17 and 18, he says this. He says, For our light affliction is but for a moment. You know, whatever your affliction is presently, whatever it is that we go through, uh, in the whole scheme of things, it's only but a moment. You know, sometimes things, you know, hit our lives and, and uh, you know, sometimes painful things, crises and, 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 and physical conditions and health problems. It's like, Lord, can, we, can I get rid of this? Um, but the fact is, it's only a very light affliction. It's, it's temporary, and pretty soon you're gonna, we're going to be in glory and everything's going to be wonderfully changed. He says, uh, it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So the very things that oftentimes we want to get rid of and shake off are things that God's going to use in our life uh, that have eternal value and eternal purpose. Paul goes on to say this, while we do not look at the things which are seen, the material, the physical, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's why it's important. We can only see those things by faith. Remember it said about Abraham, he saw a city. You know, he saw that celestial city, he saw it by faith, and it was afar off. And it's important that we have also, too, that eye of faith that we can look beyond, you know, all the things on this earth. Because it is interesting how I think so often the devil captivates our focus. He gets our attention, you know, by simply looking at things. Uh, I was tempted a couple times this week uh, to look at some material things. Um, just some, you know, acquisitions. And, uh, and as I looked at them and, uh, you know, considered them, uh, as I came away, because before I do anything, I, I have found such great value in praying. There, there's such great protection that we have because when you pray, you bring God into your decision. And it's amazing sometimes we can look at things in an outward kind of way uh, and we can be tempted by it, we can be drawn in by it, um, we can get involved with it, but, uh, you know, when you pray, the Lord wonderfully has a way of protecting you. And it's interesting, as I consider these two acquisitions, a little bit later on, wisdom came. I call it sometimes just common sense comes, because, you know, when you want something, isn't it amazing? When we want something, you know, it's like, wow, you know, we can get so driven, you know, to get whatever it is that we want. But, uh, you know, when you bring God into the equation of it, man, you get his wisdom, you get his common sense, uh, and you see, you know, I don't need that. And that's what I said. That's what I said about both these two particular things. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what they are. You're probably dying to know what they are, you know. What is it? <laughs> it was a car and a boat. <laughs> She, yeah, she knew a car was on the list, right? Because I'm a guy. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we live by cars. <laughs> but at any rate here. Uh, so anyway, this group here, what they have, that's this ID mark, this identification mark, 
uh, basically of their father's name. Now, remember we talked about the mark. That the, we're told that, remember, this 144,000 back in chapter 7, they were sealed. You know, they were sealed with a seal. And then remember also, too, we talked about uh, last week the mark of the beast, that those who basically um, uh, throw their, you know, they, they, they basically throw themselves in with the, the Antichrist and they receive his mark. Uh, so it's interesting. We have a contrast here. You know, those that are marked by God, but those that are actually marked in a sense, the mark of the beast is, is, is a mark uh, by Satan. And, and one of the things that we learn, because when you look a little bit further, and we'll talk about it maybe next time that we get together uh, regarding chapter 14, that when they receive the, the, the people that are alive, um, remember that they cannot buy or sell. Antichrist controls the economy. When you control the economy, you control people. That's simply the way it works. So you can't buy or sell unless you take this mark, whatever it is going to be. And I'm sure that those who are alive at that point will understand when that mark is presented to them. But it guarantees no salvation. When you read a little bit further, I think in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 14, we're not going there this morning, but uh, it speaks about the fact that if they receive this mark, so there's no guarantee uh, of salvation for anyone. So it's going to be very dicey. That's why, you know what, if you don't know Jesus Christ, uh, you want to commit yourself to him now because the, this is the great escape. Coming to Christ, going in the rapture, not having to go through this period. That's the great escape. You want that. And I got a deal for you today. It's free. Amen. It's free so whosoever will simply believe and put their faith, you know, in the Lord and Savior, uh, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, Turning to verse 2 here, John hears voices. He hears the roaring of water, uh, probably like a waterfall in a very beautiful kind of way. He, feel, he hears peals of thunder, uh, and he hears also two beautiful instrumentation. I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the voice of harpists uh, playing their harps, and they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, uh, and the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed uh, from the earth. Now, who is this orchestra? You know who this orchestra is? It's you and me. It's the church. That's why you know what? You need to get practiced up, okay? But you know, when you, when you think about it, we're not going to be off key then, okay? We're not going to be off key. We're going to be in perfect pitch. Uh, you know, when you get your glorified body, you're going to have the voice you always wanted to have, okay? Okay, you know, sometimes you look at certain, you know, certain, you know, uh, uh, what was her name? Um, uh, Whitney Houston. Um, and, uh, you know, I imagine there's a lot of people that like to have a voice like her. Um, Josh Grogan, you know, uh, I love his voice and, and other individuals. But you're going to have the perfect voice when you get to glory. And, and when you think about, you know, there's something about the voice as it's sort of modulated, you know, uh, you know, uh, in tune and so forth. It's a beautiful thing. It's actually, you know, when you think about, you know, instrumentation uh, in an in a, in a interesting kind of way, they try to mimic. I, I know they're an accompaniment, but they, they sometimes, you know, they, they sometimes try to mimic. And, and it's like when you look at a lot of contemporary music, a lot of times it's just a lot of noise, you know, taking place or something so, you know, beautiful, you know, about the voice. And the worship team has told me that because they're up, they're up here hearing you guys sing at them. Uh, and, and what a beautiful thing it is, you know, as we, um, 
as we worship our Lord. You know, the Bible says several times, sing a new song. You know, sometimes there are folks that, you know, it's like, I want to sing nothing but the hymns. And the hymns are beautiful, okay? But, you know, the Bible encourages us nine times to sing a new song. And, and that's why we try to incorporate new songs, you know, into, you know, our worship uh, time. Uh, very important. But, you know, at different times, the church has lost its song. Maybe that speaks of you personally. You know, at one point in your Christian experience, man, when things were just kind of, you know, there was a, just a beautiful reciprocation between you and the Lord, and, 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 and you just, you know, you found yourself just singing and worshiping. You know you've got a worshipful heart if you're by yourself and you're just singing with no music. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And if you've lost your song, you know, maybe it's time for you to get back to that place, you know, of adoration, worship, and praise, where basically you're just, you're singing. And I think you can be singing, it says, when you're humming. And, and it's, isn't it beautiful? And I know many of us have had this, maybe most of us have, hopefully all of us have had it. But you wake up in the morning and there's a song in your, in your head. Isn't that great? Are, are you just going along through the course of your day and there's just a song uh, that just sort of reverberates over and over and over again, you know, in your head and in your heart? We need to have that. You know, uh, I was, I'm reading uh, Martin Luther's biography by uh, Eric uh, Metaxas, and uh, I recommend it. It's a pretty good one. But uh, actually, before Luther, um, the music had died off in the church. There were maybe some chanting and that sort of thing, but music basically had died off. And he was very instrumental. Uh, that was one of the, one of the, 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 you know, the Reformation you know, principles uh, that came out of it. And even, even a number of the, his fellow reformers um, didn't like the fact that he was, you know, he was uh, accentuating music. Uh, there was even some of the reformers, you know, that they didn't think that music had any place. And when there was music involved in any kind of worship service, they called it the devil. That's sad. But listen to this. Because it is so, because it is so found everywhere, uh, music today, it is hard to believe that before Luther introduced it, there was no congregational singing in churches. He knew the power of music and wanted to use it for God's purposes. Now, now Luther was a musician, as well as you know a great theologian, um, and uh, and, a, and, a, and a teacher. Here's a quote from Luther: "Music is a fair and lovely gift of God, which has often awakened and moved me to the joy of preaching." Augustine, Saint Augustine, was troubled in conscience. Uh, whenever he caught himself delighting in music, which he took to be sinful. But he was a choice spirit, and were he living today, he would agree with us. I have no use for cranks who despise music. He said it, not me. Because it is a gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy. They forget thereby all the wrath and chastity and arrogance and the like. Next, after theology, I give, the I give music the highest place and the greatest honor. I would not exchange what little I, have, I know of music for something great. Uh, experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. We know that to the devils, worship is distasteful and insufferable. 
My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delight, delivered me uh, from dire plagues. And he, uh, Luther was a guy who, who struggled with depressions, and uh, he would call them plagues when they would at different times come upon him. But, uh, you know, it's interesting how, you know, for what we have in Christ, you know, for what we have in biblical truth and principle, you know, the devils always try to create a counterfeit. And we see that in the world. We see people singing in the world because it does uplift you to a degree, but there's nothing as powerful and uplifting and encouraging as singing to the Lord. I was kind of, I was watching PBS this week, and it kind of surprised me because there was a country, country group on there, and there was a foursome. Now, Johnny Cash was a Christian. I think one of them was Waylon Jennings, and uh, the other one was Chris Christofferson. And the other one was Willie Nelson, you know, the guy who likes his pot. But they were all singing a song about Jesus. <laughs> and uh, I don't sing country, okay? I don't do country. But uh, I was singing that song. It was just great to hear these guys just, you know, up. And, and the crowd was just, you know, obviously there was a lot of Christians in the crowd. It, it was just, you know, kind of a, a beautiful thing. You know, there's another song here we find also in the book of Revelation. And uh, over in chapter 5, it says in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, here's what, the, here's what they sang. We got the lyrics. We don't have the melody. We got the lyrics, though. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth and going down to verse 12, they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, glory and blessing. It continued on in verse 13. Blessing and honor, glory and power. Excuse me. Uh, be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So again, it, it, it's interesting here too that this, only, the re, only the redeemed of this 144, only the, the redeemed can sing that song. You know, unbelievers can't sing. They can, they can mouth the words, okay? But they can't sing like the believer. And it's interesting to me because when you look at all the religions of the world, what separates and marks Christianity and makes them different? We are a singing religion, if I can use that word. Religion. We're a singing group. Even, even you know, the Jews, they have a cantor. But they don't sing like us. And when you look at the prolific amount of music, one of the things, so I came to Christ in 1975, and many of you know, at that point, there wasn't a whole lot of what we call Christian contemporary music. It was just beginning. You had guys like Larry Norman, uh, Randy Stonehill, uh, Phil Keggy. Uh, and I can remember going into Alpha and Omega when it used to be down here in Penfield back then, and you could, like, 10 albums. That was it, okay? But look, out, look, look at the prolific, uh, you know, creative, as, as God poured out his spirit, you know, on this generation. Uh, and the, and what, what he gave birth to, you know, was a whole new genre of, of, of Christian, contemporary Christian music. And that's why we do. We sing a new song. Yes, I have great respect, and I love the old hymns. One of the things I love about the old hymns is they're so rich with doctrine and, and with teaching and instruction there. But also, too... 
we, we need to be singing a, a new song, you know, unto the Lord. And again, uh, this song here for this particular group, it's going to be Holy Spirit inspired um, in its lyrics and in its, in its, uh, in its melody. Now, we want to, as we look at these last two verses, we want to uh, really take a, a page, if you will, and an example from the lives of this particular group, this 144,000, as they finished their ministry, and it just a number of things here are said about them. And one of the things that we see here uh, in verse 4 is, is basically we're introduced to their, just to their consecration, you know, their separation. Uh, and we see that it's simply marked here in verse 4 by a thing what we would call celibacy. Now he says this, these are the ones who were not defiled with women. Now in no way is he ever denigrating a righteous woman. He's simply speaking here, he's referring to the fact that these are sexually pure. You know, I don't know how long you've been around this planet, but I've been around long enough to see a moral meltdown. in our culture, in our society. The, 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 the openness of sexual, the sexual life is something I think so different than any generation of people that America's ever seen. And I, and I was kind of think, I was kind of thinking about comparing it to like my high school years. And uh, and I can remember from all my buddies and, and, and all that, and you know what? For the most part, you couldn't pay a woman to get sex. I mean, uh, as far as fellow students and friends and all that sort of thing. It's a lot different today. And, and it just is a, it's an escalation of immorality that is filtered down and, and affected the, the culture, the young men and the young women. It's happened since, basically since the 1960s. And again, he's not denigrating righteous womanhood. Probably referring, no doubt, to the immorality that during this, remember, all restraints, all godly restraints are taken off this generation. And so people are just going to do anything they want to do. And what God is simply saying to that generation, okay, if you don't want me. You know, the thing is, you know, when, when, when God is in the life of a person or a culture, there is, a, there is so many benefits to that. I mean, if you, you know, when you think about calculating up the benefits that, that a, a, a righteous nation or a culture, a society of people that have, that are, that are, that are reaching out to God. You know, one of the things that I have mentioned you know, we, we have this, uh, this, this bizarre anomaly that's taken place over the last about, what, 18, 19, 20 years of school shootings. And it's hard sometimes to connect the dots. But in the 1900s, we threw the Bible out of school. We threw prayer out of school. We threw God out of the culture. So what do you got? What do you got? I had mentioned to uh, somebody one time, they hadn't thought of it like this, but the Lord had kind of showed me this 
interesting thing. That one of the things that you see going on in Europe is the um, Islamic terrorism. A lot of people don't connect to the fact that they threw the Jews out of Europe. Threw God's people out of Europe. Tried to murder them. Creates a vacuum. And something evil is going to fill that vacuum. But when people throw God out of their life, out of their mentality, their thinking. Because a lot of times people think, well, I don't need God. I, I, you know, I can be good. I, I, even our moral, our ethics that we have, our moral ethics that we have, if you take them back far enough, they have a, they have a Judeo-Christian origin. And people think, well, it's just you know, the, the civilization of our culture, our society. Huh. No, not at all. Again, this is, there's no indictment here against marriage as far as the choice, the lifestyle choice that this group of individuals made. And when you talk about celibacy or being a virgin, whether it's male or female, it's a special gift from God. Do you know that? You know, there has to be a special gift from God. Um, turn to Matthew 19. The, the Bible speaks about this. Uh, Jesus here was, uh, he was teaching about divorce, actually. And he says here in verse 9, and we'll work our way here. It was a warning, basically, a warning for those people that just basically, you know, wanted to throw... Um, you know, marriage aside, their commitment aside, uh, you know, for somebody else, anybody else that comes down the road. Um, you know, there's always a problem when you change the definition of marriage. That, that's what we have going on in our culture. The, the new definition of marriage. There's only one definition in, in God's eyes. A man and a woman. Okay. Not two women, not two men. And when you change the definition, why cannot one man marry five women? That's the next, that's, that's, that's got to be the next step. And then somewhere down the line, why can't an adult marry a child? If you go back 30 years ago, and you would ask, take an inventory, a survey on the street, if two people of the same sex could get married, People would have been shocked. And just like we, in a sense, think, you know, an adult and a child get married, that, that, that's pedophilia. Well, there may be a culture and a generation yet to come. Like, why not? Why not? Some guy that's not too long ago, he married his dog. Did you hear about that one? Yeah, he married his dog. Well, the bed must be full of fleas. I don't know. It's, uh, can't figure that one out. Like I said, I love dogs at this point in my life. 
as long as they belong to you. <laughs> we went through our dog phase. We, we had dogs. We had dogs. We had cats. We had birds. We had it all. And uh, we're thankfully dog-free, bird-free, cat-free. We're not mice-free, okay? I was talking to my neighbor yesterday. He was telling me he had mice. I said, yes, we too. <laughs> Can't get rid of them. But verse 9 says, I say to you, whosoever divorces his wife, except for spirit, uh, excuse me, uh, sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Whoever marries her is, uh, who is divorced commits adultery. So there is, there is a, a divorce there. Uh, God does you know, allow it within certain parameters. Uh, but these are people who just want to jump from one relationship to the next and forget the commitment and forget the kids and the family and all that. I want to do what I want to do. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And so he talks about singleness, but he uses it within the context of this term eunuch. And a eunuch was sort of an indentured servant or a slave. And he says this, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. In other words, somebody who is born with this ability, I don't, need, I don't need a mate. I don't need a spouse. I've met a few people like that. And, and they're fine with it. They're, they're good with that. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. In other words, people that were forced into celibacy. Daniel the prophet. Daniel the prophet. He was a slave. He was a eunuch. In other words, he was castrated. He was an emasculated man. And look how God used him. God made him the prime minister. I wonder, I wonder too, if a certain point in Daniel's life is like, Lord, why? Why? He was royalty. You know, Daniel was royalty of Israel. They're, they're the ones that they took. When, when the... When the uh, People of Israel were captured. Killed a lot of people. We took the royalty. They were the smart guys, the educated ones, along with his friends. And they were made eunuchs. And I would imagine uh, any of us were in Daniel's situation as a teenager, taken as, as a young guy, would have said, Lord, why? Why, 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 why? And I think we need to be careful sometimes when we, when we begin to second-guess God. Little did Daniel know at his teenage point that he would become the prime minister over and over again. And God would use him in a very powerful way. And there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. In other words, somebody who says, you know what, I'm gonna, I, I don't want to marry because I want God to take my life and use my life. I think Paul was like that even though Paul was once married. To be a part of the Sanhedrin, to be a part of you know, that, that kind of a group, you had to be married. But whatever happened, did, did his wife leave him? We, we have nothing on that in the scriptures. Did his wife leave him? Did she pass away or something of that nature? But you know, my pastor in his 60s when his wife passed away, surprised a lot of people, said, I am not going to marry again. And he hasn't. And he's simply, in a sense, he's made himself 
a celibate, you know, for the kingdom of God. And that's why it's a problem. That's why you see a lot of unfortunate um, predatory stuff taking place in the Catholic Church. And for those of us who grew up in the Catholic Church, uh, you, the th- here's the point. Here's the point. You can't force celibacy on somebody. Some guys can maybe handle it. But you cannot force it on someone. Because if they still have that sex, that sex drive, it's going to exude itself in some other way. And so anyway, getting back here to our text, that uh, they were virgins, they were, they were celibates. And again, uh, they had, when you think about the time in which their ministry took place, wouldn't have been very smart for them to marry, right? Remember Paul talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in a time of great distress? may not be a good time to get married. In, in a, in a, in a, in a, and I think each person has to be able to receive that for themselves. No, no one can you know, force anyone or tell someone they have to do that. That's something that each individual has to feel comfortable with you know, in their life, and certainly that was true uh, with the Apostle Paul. Now, we're told here also, too, that these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so he speaks here to this whole matter of devotion uh, and their dedication. And uh, you ever one time say to yourself, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will go wherever you want me to go. Do you ever say or think that to yourself? But then all of a sudden you got older. And you got more settled. And you had a good job. And everything was sort of taken care of financially. And you got a lot more careful. I think we need to still have that kind of a chutzpah, that kind of passion. Lord, where, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? I remember John Corson sharing a story that his mom always wanted to be a missionary. She couldn't. Raising a family and all that. And so when John's father passed away, and then at 80 years old, his mother went into the mission field in Vanuatu over in the South Pacific. I've heard, some, I've heard a number of guys over the years, there's no exaggeration, I will serve the Lord when I retire. Fooey. You got to start where you are right now. Because the older you get, the more careful you get. The more timid you get. The more feel, fearful you are because of you know, well, my, my health isn't what it used to be. You know what? There's always a reason. We need to start serving him right here, right now. And then when and if you do retire, man, it'll be, I'm free to do it. You know, as the Lord leads, whatever that is. What I think is so commendable about this group is, man, their obedience. They're just obedient. That's that simple word. Isn't that kind of going back to basics? Obedience. <laughs> that was a word I didn't like as a young kid in parochial school. I remember Miss Opitz. She was a second grade teacher, and she had been a policewoman. She was a tough lady. She had my number. And I didn't like that word obedience. 
but I needed it. And we see that it's so commendable as we look at this group here. Uh, Wes Bentley was here from Far Reaching Ministry in Africa. I think about five years ago he was here on a Sunday morning. And Wes said this, I've never forgotten it. And there has been some others too that have mentioned it to me. They have not forgotten it either because it was such an important point. And sometimes too you may listen to a whole sermon or, or you know, and, and it's like there's one thing, there's one thing that you just sort of, it really sticks to you, it harpooned you. And Wes Bentley said this, he said, obedience isn't doing 90% of what we know we should do. Because I don't know, if you're just like me, can't you kind of console yourself with the fact, I've done 80%. I've done 80% of what you wanted me to do. And the point that Wes Bentley was making, obedience is doing 100% of what we know that we should do. Be careful you don't comfort and console yourself on being halfway obedient to the Lord. Because you know what he'll do? He'll keep bringing us back to that. It's like I remember this song back in the 70s about the children of Israel. Another lap around Mount Sinai. For 40 years, another lap around Mount Sinai. And that's, that happens to the Christian. If, if we're disobedient over and over again, you know what? You end up in a wilderness. And you're doing laps around Mount Sinai. You're not quite getting into the promised land. Obedience is important. That's what we see uh, in this particular group. And another thing that we see here, it basically says they follow him wherever he goes. Wherever he goes. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, cha chapter 16, verse 24. Matthew 16, 24. Listen to what Jesus says about following him. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself or herself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's why I, I, I've realized because I like watching politics. I, I like watching politics. Just to kind of see how things are going. But I've come to realize that one of the things behind politics is this. That we want somebody who's going to save our lifestyle. That's what it's about. And Jesus said, if we're just seeking to save our lifestyle, that's why politicians, is kind of, it's a messianic thing. People see a political savior there. You're going you're gonna to protect it. You're going to save our lifestyle. And if that's the case, man, I'm going to vote for you. And that's a dangerous kind of thing for a believer. He hasn't called us to save our life. He's called us to give our life away. And I'll tell you what. You give yourself away to Jesus, you will never regret that in heaven. There may be lots of regrets at the end of life, but there'll never be a regret for giving yourself over to Jesus and turning your life over to him. It always reminds me of Oscar Schindler. If you saw the movie, 
and it depicted what he said at the end of his life. War was over. He had saved something like 1,500 Jews. If you go to Israel, um, he's uh, on the avenue of the righteous, righteous Gentiles. And, um, and so all the Jewish elders were around him as he was walking out to the car and he was going to drive off because he was basically considered a, a Nazi criminal at that point. He was a Nazi industrialist. But, but he saw what the Nazi, Nazi party was doing and so he did his very best to save Jewish lives. But he fell down by the back of the car and he said, I wish I could have done more. That was the one part of that movie. It's just kind of like... I wish I could have done more. Or I wish I should have done more. We don't want to be saying that. We do not want to be saying that. Do it now. Amen? Do it now. Serve Him now. Commit yourself to Him now. Consecrate yourself to Him now. Because all the other stuff that we're living for is going to pass away. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can gain the world, but in the process, you lose everything. What a tragedy it was this week to hear the news about these, these two folks that have just, they were at the pinnacle of their life and their career. Uh, the one was uh, uh, Kate Spade. And many of us probably more readily know Anthony Bourdain. And, and I've watched some of, his, some of his programs as he's gone around the world. And it was interesting. I saw something um, in a sense that he's going around the world, and we know that he was, a, he was a chef and all that. And he would go around, and he would sample food, and he would sample culture. In other words, he was, a, he was tasting life. And I think a lot of times folks go through their, their experience of life and they're just sort of tasting life. They're, they're sampling life. And no doubt he had, as, he, as he had gone through all the cultures of the world, he realized that it wasn't there. It wasn't there. Because you know what? We know it's only in Christ. If you live selfishly, if you seek to just save your life, you lose it. But if you give it to Christ, man, you save your life. That, that's the prophet. That's the eternal. Now, coming to verse 5, you know, Hebrews says about all those in chapter 11, the world was not worthy of them because of their righteous life. And I think it could be said of this group too. For in their mouth was found no deceit. For they are without fault before the throne of God. You know, the commercial says, what's in your wallet? It's a credit card commercial. What's in your wallet? So typical of the world, isn't it? Hey, God says this, what's in your mouth? Because whatever's in your mouth comes out of your heart. The mouth basically reveals what it is within the heart, within the life. And Jesus 
says this in Matthew 15, 18. But those things, and again, the, the, the focus of the religious group of that day was they were so concerned about what goes into your mouth and in, into your stomach. But Jesus said, hey, what comes out of your mouth? Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things that come out. In the last year, you know how sometimes the Lord has a way of opening up something you've read many times. But all of a sudden, he opens up a truth, a verse of scripture, and, and you know it's just so important and relevant, you know, in your present experience. And, you, and I find this happening all the time. But one of the, one of the precious verses that, have, that, that the Lord has spoken to me is over in Proverbs 22, 11. You might want to write that down. And it goes like this. It's not gender restrictive. But it says, he who loves purity of heart will have grace on his lips and the king will be his friend. There's a lot in that. You could, you, you could, uh, you could have a whole sermon just on that verse. He or she who loves purity of heart because the heart's pure will have grace on their lips and the king, the king will be their friend. I love that. And, it's, and it necessitates for us how important purity is. Because, folks, we live in a filthy culture. I remember as a young person, you wanted to find a lot, of, you wanted to find dirt for your eyes, go down to Monroe Avenue, remember? Now just a button, it's in your home. Whatever, whatever you want. We live in a dirty culture. We need to keep ourselves pure. And the, whole, the Lord will help us to do that. And as a result, you'll have grace. You'll have grace on your lips. And the King, Jesus, there'll be a bond, a wonderful bond of friendship there that perhaps maybe you've never experienced before. Because the thing about purity is this. Without purity... Without purity, you have no power. We have no power. Power is inextricably linked to purity of heart. And that's what we see about this particular group. So I'm going to ask you to meditate upon those things. I'm going to ask the ushers if they will please come forward to serve the elements of communion. Uh, if this morning you're uh, perhaps maybe your relationship, you're not sure if you know the Lord. And it's important too, I think, as we come to this time of, uh, of communion, receiving these emblems of the body and the blood, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That if you're not sure about your salvation, I want you, I'm going to pray for you, pray for us all, 
But if you need to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, you do that. If in any way you have that question, because these emblems represent that. The person of Christ. We're recognizing he gave his life, his body, his blood. That we would be saved. That we would be redeemed. And if maybe in some way that this whole world has defiled you. You need to get back to a place of, of, of purity. And when you get back to that place of purity, you're going to sing again. You're going to have a song in your heart. You're going to wake up with a song. So we're going to worship and have a prayer.
Lord, what a privilege we have to be called your very own. Lord, we thank you for the great love that you've demonstrated through the cross. Lord, you came, Lord, to not only take our sin, but unbelievably, Lord, incredibly, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, Lord, in you. Lord, we, uh, as we come to you, Lord, this morning, Lord, if things in our lives and our hearts have not been all the way they should be, Lord, we ask you to cleanse us. Lord, remove any, Lord, this world in which we walk. Lord, the dust of defilement so often falls upon us. And we ask you, Lord, to strengthen us by your might and by your spirit. And whatever, Lord, might be in our hearts, Lord, whatever sin or iniquity, we now confess that to you. We give that to you. Lord, we want that to be nailed to the cross. And Lord, we ask you not only for forgiveness, but for power, the power of your blessed spirit to enable us, to empower us, that we might live for your glory. We might live for your honor, for your pleasure. Lord, we, we have tasted the pleasures of the world. Lord, they're empty. Lord, they're counterfeit. Lord, they always leave us with a sense of, Lord, emptiness and defeat. But Lord, to partake of you, what a privilege, what an honor. We're truly grateful and thankful. And so, Lord, we, we now receive these elements. Lord, the bread and the wine, the juice, praising you, thanking you, honoring you. For our great God, our Savior, our Keeper. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. I have to say they're good little wafers. <laughs> I would ask you if you would please keep Margie and I in prayer. We have a reunion in Philadelphia next Saturday. And we don't want it just to be a reunion, you know, renewing old acquaintances and friends. We want to talk to people about Jesus. And, and I know there's some folks that are, that are really hurting. So if next Saturday or even during this week, if you would think of that and pray for us. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Let's all rise.